Hi everybody and welcome to the Robcast number 27 and oh my word. This one, fasten your seatbelts folks. I am in the green room at the Brady Theater in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I've never been to Tulsa. I'm uh, here on the Everything is Spiritual tour and I am with Carlton Pearson. Carlton, welcome. Rob, welcome to our town. I can't believe you're here. <laughs> that you had the guts. <laughs> And the balls to come to a town like this uh, with your radical, powerful message. I'm just elated. Well, uh, it just feels totally right to be here. And it I'm so right. excited about tonight, but I, you have been like a legend in my mind. I have heard stories about you. And so all of you listening, I'm going to just start in an interview, Carlton, and hang on because when you hear the story, the bits and pieces that I've heard over the years... I've been like, someday I've got to track that man down. It turns out he lives in Tulsa. We met recently and I was like, when I was in Tulsa, could I interview you for the Robcast? So we're gonna get to that in a second. But first off, um, just a couple things real quickly. Um, this week, you're listening to this, on a, this comes out on a Monday. I'll be in New Orleans, Nashville, uh, at Rocket Town, Atlanta, at the Tabernacle, one of my favorite venues on the planet. Then I'll be at the Fillmore in Miami and Jacksonville. Now. Here we go. <laughs> Doesn't matter who you are, what race, even if you have a Confederate flag, he's coming. And, and he's going to tear it down when he gets it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Carlton, I, I first heard of your legend. I think I heard a piece on NPR about you. And I was like, this man, what a story. And then I saw you on the Monique show years ago. And your presence, I thought to myself, now this is a pastor, but like a whole new kind of pastor. And everybody I meet who they have a, they have a unique presence, I always know that they've suffered. There's only one way. There's only one way people have that kind of grounding and substance and joy. So let me start way, way back. Where, where did you grow up? San Diego, California. Oh, did you really? Yeah. And what was your household? What was your family like? My dad, it was the eldest of seven kids. My mother was an only child. They are the parents of, of um, six living kids. The first one lived about 14 hours. In fact, daddy, who my dad just transitioned in March, we've never heard him say anything about her. He mentioned her on his deathbed twice. Oh, how beautiful. Her name was Caroline. Caroline is so beautiful. I didn't know she was so beautiful because she was a little infant and he never, he processed it in his own, the death in his own way. Oh, how old was he when he died? He was 88. So he never mentioned his daughter who only lived 14 days. 14 hours. 14 hours until his deathbed, deathbed in which he mentions her twice. My mother mentioned her repeatedly. In fact, if I'd say from the pulpit, we had, my mother has six children, she'd yell out, seven! I didn't care that really? baby. I didn't care that baby nine months for you to forget her. Um, but Daddy was. It was difficult for him to lose the child, and he just never brought it up. And and so we said, Well, what does she look like, Daddy? He said she looked like Dowo, which is the nickname for my eldest sister Tanya, who my brother could not mention her name properly. His their, his sixty fifth birthday was yesterday. We've been together as a unit for sixty six years, and he's the first of the unit, original unit to make his transition. So everybody's going through the fact that daddy is gone. He'd say, mm -hmm. I, I go to heaven and, uh, cause he was in between worlds, literally. He'd say, I go to heaven and I come back down here to hell to see what the hell's going on. And, 
That's my dad, a classical Pentecostal preacher who would use that kind of language. He said, uh, and y'all sitting up here looking at me, just staring at me. What do you want? I said, Daddy, you're, you're going to the land of the living. We're in the land of the dying, and you're dying, and we don't know how many more days we're going to have you. I'm going to be fine. Don't y'all worry about me. Stop trying to make me eat. Stop trying to make me drink. Uh, we were trying to catheterize. I don't, I don't want to pee. Leave me alone. He would say that kind of stuff. He said, that's all an illusion. This is my dad, 88. Really? Yeah. This is, he said, a spoon is not a spoon to me anymore. So that experience, you never really confront your, all of your adulthood as long as your parents are alive. He mm. left, and a whole half of my adult being manifested. Not clearly, but I started seeing another side of me that I never had permission to experience. Like what? A certain sense of responsibility, and I stopped being his little boy. Mm-hmm. Two weeks before he died, he was trying to fix the plumbing in the back of the house. He was, he was really, he was down to like 110 pounds. And um, I never have been good with my hands. I can't fix it. I can break anything, tap anything. <laughs> That's how I am. Can't, can't fix, fix it. Save my life. Daddy couldn't read and, and we couldn't afford, you know, electricians and plumbers and stuff like that. So anything that broke in the house, he fixed it himself. So I'm trying to fix the toilet, take the top off the toilet. And he gave me pliers and I'm bending down and water's coming off. It, it never works right for me if I'm trying to fix it. Daddy can just fix things and turn it in, in a matter of seconds, seems like. And so all of a sudden, I'm 62 years old and I became nine again. Ain't you through yet, son? You ought to be through by now. All you got to do is turn that, take that thing and switch it. Turn it around, boy. And I suddenly I, I became his little kid mm. that could fix nothing. He used to go, oh, Carlton, when I couldn't fix something and he did it <laughs> he did it that day i thought this old man is still intimidating me <laughs> at 88 and i'm 62 but it was precious he was i got a little stool he sat there wobbly finally i called somebody in to, to, and he didn't want me to pay I said, you don't need to be paying all that money boy we can fix it ourselves i said daddy this is the 21st century okay i got the money to pay for this i don't do this kind of stuff <laughs> But it was a profound experience. Absolutely. So you grew up a Pentecostal preacher's son. Fourth generation Pentecostal. My, my dad, his dad, and my mother's grandfather. I mean, classical holiness or hell type guys. And for people who don't know what Pentecostal is, how do you explain that to them? It is the classical Pentecostal movement that has its roots in scriptural roots in Acts 2 and 4. The, 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 holy, the holy on the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish festival for the celebration of the giving of the law, fifty days after the children of Israel arrived in the Sinai Desert, where's the Sinai Mountain, uh, Moses went up and got the laws, and so they celebrated for the day of the giving of the laws, the Ten Commandments. Modern day New Testament Pentecostal celebrated for speaking in tongues and praying for the sick and prophesying and the nine gifts of the Spirit. You know, in Corinthians. Uh, what is it, 15 or whatever. Um, and Oral Roberts and the Assemblies of God, the Church of God in Christ, and Pentecostals, the Assemblies of the World. These are classical Pentecostal movements. Oral was Pentecostal holiness. And then I called, I used to call Oral the Pope of Pentecost and Billy Graham the Pope of Protestantism. <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up in this movement. Yeah. This very distinct movement. Did you know you wanted to be a pastor or a preacher? Was that just from the get-go what you were going to do? Always. I started preaching when I was like five, and um, 
not ordained. I could barely read, but I felt called because my daddy was that way. His father was that way. I had several uncles that way on both sides of the family. And preaching was the thing, except you didn't think you could make a living preaching. So I wanted to be a doctor and preach on the side. Um, I was going to major in philosophy at ORU, and they didn't have it. So I went ahead and majored in biblical literature, English Bible, minored in theology and historical studies. And he hired me. Oral Roberts. Yes. And how do you explain Oral Roberts to people who've never heard of him? What would you, how would you describe him? He is the 20th century godfather who brought, I call it the godfather, who brought intelligence, education, the emphasis of education, and healing together. He was known for the, he and Billy Graham were friends. They started both at age 30, 1948, mm. 47, 48, in big tents. Oral had big tents and drew huge crowds while, while Billy Graham was at Madison Square Garden in, in New York and the newspapers were treating him like he was a, a god. Oral was over in Trenton, a few miles away, New Jersey, in a big tent, packing it out every night with 10,000. But he was demonized because of his Pentecostalism. And he was always, he wasn't bitter about that, but he was a little broken about it, a little angry about it. So he ends up with a university. He tried to join the Methodist church because he thought Methodist people were smarter and had more money, and Billy Graham had the Baptist and the, Pentecost, uh, the Presbyterian Church following him. Interestingly, uh, it never appeared to me, and Oral would never say this, Oral was a genius. He built this half a billion dollar u university out here in the $250 million city of faith. I was on the executive board when that was built. Um, he was way ahead of his time, but he, I noticed, he would never admit this, that he didn't seem to have respect for his followers. Oh, interesting. They were backwards thinking people from the 40s and 50s who were poor and didn't embrace science, didn't embrace education. For the reason, one of the reasons the City of Faith, which is a hospital, the largest building under one roof, it was, fifth, it was like five football fields of floor Oof. space. Incredible. Um, he. But the reason it didn't succeed is people came to Oral for 40 years for hospital prevention. Oh. And then he builds one. So this movement was about God will heal you. His but ministry. But then the guy who's the leader of the movement that's just God will heal you builds a hospital and is like, actually, doctors could help. Right. <laughs> it was yeah. a shock so to it the throws whole the whole system off. And his followers never fully got it. They never fully got it. It's like he evolved within that movement. And so many of the people just, it was too, too much. You know what he told me one time recently when he was dying? He, he had a invalid tent. He had the big, big we call it the big top 10,000 seater. Then there was an invalid tent where the, the really terminally ill people, some of them with goiters and, and oxygen tanks, and they brought them there on stretchers and against usually their doctor's advice. Between his, the end of his sermon, and the altar call, he would go. He would he would go over to the to that tent and literally lay hands. They were smelly and vomit and urine and 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 you know bodily emissions. Uh, he hated it. But what bothered him the most, and this was a stunning revelation to me, no one was ever healed in that tent, in the in the invalid tent. Wow. The miracles took place and. And I said, you know, I said, you want me to tell you why? Or else not because God doesn't do miracles. He said, I never got that, son. I said, well, in the, in the big tent, 
the atmosphere was charged with faith. You had music, you had a choir, you had all that big crowd there. Uh, some fans were going. It was just a different energy in there. In the, in the invalid, they couldn't see you. They, were, they didn't have big screens in there, see, like we do today. They couldn't mm-hmm. see you. Some of them were, were on medication. It was hard to get their faith going. Their families brought them by faith. They probably would have stayed at home. That was my explanation. Um, but in the other, in the, in the big, in the big uh, tent, you had praise and worship and clapping and responding, and you were preaching, and they saw you in your gyrations, and your, you were manipulating the atmosphere. A massive exchange of energy. Yeah. was already going on in the room. In that room. Yeah. But in the other one, you could hear oxygen um, tanks going. Oh, yeah. And, and, and you could smell the stench of decaying flesh and people dying. It was a whole different atmosphere. You know, when you're pastoring, as you have for years, you have to create an atmosphere. Tonight, yeah. there'll be an atmosphere in here. Uh, everywhere you go, there is a, an energy and a, an ambiance that, that penetrates a person's soul and their mind. And they actually transcend. Mm-hmm. You know, a person who transcends literally goes into some kind of a trance. That's what the word comes from. They, they, they dismiss themselves from one reality and they somehow connect to another. That's how the African slaves made it. Oh, that's old African spiritism. They came over here to a country that the, and a culture with which they had nothing, to which they could not relate at all. Yeah. And it was so overwhelming, so they had to reach back. That's how African Pentecostalism came in. They had to reach back to what their ancestors for thousands of years had taught them, and they actually created another reality. Little simple people who came over here on slaves knew what we teach as new thought and expanded consciousness today by changing the environment based on how you perceive it yes oh so so this is the setting that you are in now did you did you start when did you you started your own church at some point 1981 after working with oral for uh I was with the class. My graduating class was 75, but he hired me that year as, for two years as an evangelist. And I felt like I wasn't, that I was limiting myself as far as traveling and going around the country. My nieces and nephews moved here with, with my sisters and brother. And I didn't want my, them to grow up in an environment without Sunday school. So I, that's one of the motivations. I said it was the Lord and, you know, sort <laughs> of what, but it was my religious... <laughs> You know, presuppositions about these kids they need to be brought up in Sunday school and church. So I started a church. Here in Tulsa. In a little, in a little just south of it, there's a city called Jinx. And I bought a little store, I rented a little storefront. Jinx? J I N? J E N K S. Okay. <laughs> but it was Jinx. And it, it, <laughs> it had a law still on the books that said blacks couldn't be in town past six o'clock at night. Whoa, this is early 80s. Yeah. Whoa. They weren't enforcing it, but it was on the books. It might still be on there for all I know. We debated on whether or not to have Sunday night service. But it, we started with about 75, 150, 300 in, in a matter of a month, and then it went up to about 1,000 before we moved there, moved out of there. But um, that was in 1981. And then it just keeps going. It just kept going. It kept growing. We bought property um, east of that where we were in Jinx, and... Because we were in a predominantly white area of town, non-threatening to whites, more non-blacks felt comfortable coming. We had the largest... And in the black church, you call them non-blacks? Uh-huh. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, white... So if I visited, you'd be like, oh, look, a non-black came. We've got a non-black in here. <laughs> and, and, 
and if I went to a, to a non-black church, they said, we've got the coloreds coming in. Uh, there's our colored. <laughs> they used to introduce my black brother, Carlton Pearson. So I started saying non-black because that would be Asians and Indians and yes. all that stuff. But it was integrated and we got a lot of credit for it. But it was because it was in a, 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 a geographically in a neighborhood where non-blacks or white yeah. people would feel less threatened to come. Yeah, it's, I, it's fascinating to me how many times people will say, well, that church is really growing and there's, it's a sociological phenomenon. Of course. As is. much as anything, yeah. 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 And you, you, there are all kind of variables to how and why a church grows. Mm-hmm. You know, you have people who are for you, but they're not with you. They love you, but they'll never darken the door of your church. You have people who are with you, but they're not for you, and they'll never miss a service. They can't stand you. They'll criticize everything you say, everything you do from the pulpit, but they're going to be there every service. And then you have about 18% of any group give 80% of the money and most of the support, and they're both with you and for you. Fascinating. And so this church grows and grows and grows and grows over the next... We got up to about five, between five and 6,000 coming. Now, they weren't all members, but they, they came. We seated 2,500, 2, and we'd fill that sometimes three times on Sundays. But at Carmen, Carmen was a man. Carmen started as he came to me in 1981. I watched his ministry grow. Gary Oliver, um, long, beautiful, hair, white, uh, blonde-haired kid that could, young men in those days who could sing like black folk. He came from the UPC, United Pentecostals, and United Pentecostal people, predominantly white, but they could play a Hammond B3 organ like black folks and shout, and they clapped on the second and fourth beat like most white people don't. Uh, there really were black people in another life. They just don't realize it. <laughs> <laughs> what a fascinating, this whole world, I know nothing now. This is fascinating. Now, when did... You, I assume, from your training, from your background, there was a party line. There was the things you say. There were the beliefs. There were the whatever. Yeah. At some point, you, from what I can tell from your story, things started to open up or change or evolve or shift in you. It, they had been shifting. As far as I was known for, for advocating integration of the races mm-hmm. within the church, primarily but not exclusively the, the Pentecostal church. And we were successful at that. Even our conference, Azusa Conference, which attracted about anywhere between thirty and 50,000 people would come to Tulsa once a year Whoa. over a week, seven, eight days. Um, what was outstanding about it, in addition to the normal choirs and preaching and the ambience of a Pentecostal experience, all the energy and the Hammond B3 organ, the big band, was the fact that, that about 20, sometimes to 25% of the attendants were non-black or white. Uh, the Assemblies of God, Methodist people came, a lot of uh, charismatic Baptists, charismatic Ang- Anglicans, charismatic, they always had put charismatic in front of their name, but they kept their denominational identities. Um, and I had, I would have a, a um, James Robinson and a Richard Hinton, you might not know the latter, um, Oral Roberts and Benny Hinn and Joyce Meyer and T.D. Jakes. But I'd also have uh, Fuchsia Pickett and Iverna Tompkins, and these were teachers and, and, and educated folk. And I'd have different kinds of singers. It was a really, um, I didn't call us a, 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 a melting pot, I called us a stew. <laughs> you know, the tomato bin, it remains the tomato, the corn remains the corn, the okra remains the okra, but they start stewing together. Mm-hmm. Then they taste a little bit like each other. Mm-hmm. Stew's always better tomorrow than it is today. 
<laughs> you mean because the stuff yeah, that preaches. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that was something that we crafted. But I was led of the see. Oral had said to me, "Isn't this interesting?" In 1972, I was leading the singing in his local seminars. We had about 3,000 guests, partners of the ministry who helped us build the university. We come to town three or four times a year. <clears throat> he learned that I, when I first met him in August of 71, soon as I, he shook my, they had a reception line for the president, his family, the staff, the, the administrators. And as soon as he shook, shook my hand, the first thing he said was, do you sing? And I said, well, I try. He said, well, talk to my son down there. I want to get you a member of the World Action Singers. I didn't know what the World Action Singers was. I'd only seen his program one time before I came here. I just felt led to come. Um, and they received me with all kind of deficiencies like math and, and, and uh, science deficiencies and whatever. And I didn't have any money. <laughs> came by faith. Sang my way through college. The next semester, I became a member of the World Action Singers, which is the 12 singers that traveled and appeared on his television program and all that stuff. Later on, we did these specials that would have a crowd as large as 60 million. Uh, Elvis Presley eclipsed us one year with 61 million. But on Sunday morning, between the time people started watching and noon, Oral Roberts had the largest viewing audience, secular or sacred, in television. This was phenomenal. 60 million. On this quarterly contact special, not on Sunday morning, but on we had what we call quarterly contact specials, and we would have a Robert Goulet or Pearl Bailey. Uh, and this right is now. the world you were in. That's the world I came into. I was born in the ghettos of San Diego, little classical Pentecostal churches, some of them little storefronts. In fact, the man who ordained me 45 years ago, his son, Charles E. Blake, pastors the West Angeles Church of God in Christ. He did my wedding. He was the chief consecrator consecrated by bishopric that's where denzel washington stevie wonder and magic all those guys go to church there uh, denzel's from the same background so is iana bonzant iana's mm, background i love her is kojic i was do, doing the bill maher show i walked backstage i was a little bit late i walked backstage and she says hello bishop thank you for for azusa i said i said excuse me she said thank you for azusa and i said what do you know about azusa she said, we're from the same background. I went, Church of God in Christ, you've got to be kidding me. She grew up under F.D. Washington, one of our premier bishops in New York. Her daddy was Baptist, her mother like Pentecost. So, and then she said, but I'm a Yoruba priestess. And that scared me in those days. I was still back in my fundamentalist uh, mentalities. And I said, uh, she was very proud to let me know that she had expanded her consciousness. I love her. And I love the way she thinks. And My- Michael Beckwith is also a Yoruba priest. But Stevie Wonder introduced me to Michael Beckwith. He's a member of West A, and he's introducing me to this expanded consciousness guy. <laughs> so, you're, so first off, it's kind of over race. You're, you're, you're making a stew. And that's a, you're immediately breaking ground there. Mm-hmm. But you must have kept going. I remember hearing a story about you seeing a girl on television or something. Seeing you saw, and you began thinking, rethinking heaven and hell somewhere in there. No, I saw, um, I saw Peter Jennings on ABC. I watch the news every mm-hmm. night, doing that religiously for 40 years at 5.30. Part of my ritual, because it, I would watch the news, hear all the trouble, and make my, made me feel like my ministry was more important. Because I was going <laughs> to save the whole world. But I, I was sitting there with my baby girl, Majesty. She was an infant in my lap, and I was feeding her. I was eating, and my, my wife was away, had left me some milk that she had, um, 
what do you call it? Pumped? Yeah. Pumped. Got it. So, um, and I'm watching the story of the Tutsis and Hutus mm-hmm. returning to Rwanda, um, to Uganda from Rwanda. And I saw these little gaunt children, faces drawn, be- bellies swollen, hair turned colors from starvation, f- from malnutrition. The mothers would sit there. I mean, they had no expression on their faces. Um, eyes were empty, hollow, look, just looking out into space, the baby pulling at the, the, the breast that looked like a deflated balloon. And, and I'm sitting there with my little girl in my hand, in my lap, little fat cheeks, Mercedes in the garage, refrigerator full, the house, cupboards full. And I felt guilty, I felt angry, I felt compassion. Um, I felt a little judgmental and I said, now, God, how could, how could you be a loving God and just suck these poor people right into hell? Because I assumed they were Muslims or non-Christians because, you know, I've never seen the righteous forsaken my seed beggar. Um, so I just assumed that these people were, were voodoo-driven Africans that didn't know Jesus and were going to hell. Mm. And so I was a little bit... I felt guilty and I felt badly, so I said that. God, something's wrong here. Why, why, how could you call yourself a loving God? And I thought I heard God say, is that what you think we're doing? Because I said, sucking them right into hell. Is that what you think? I never heard or imagined God referring to itself as we. Is that what you think we're doing? And I said... Oh, what a great line. Uh-huh. Is yeah. that what you think we're doing? That stunned me. Is that what we think we're, you, we're doing? And I said, um, well, that's what... Yes, that's, I, you're just sucking them into hell. And um, he said, can't you, can't, you, can't you see they're already there? I thought, whoa. That's hell? And as long as you keep believing that, you're going to continue to perpetuate that I that ideology on the planet and put people in hell. I'm, I'm, um, I'm not all about that at all. And I thought, well, your, the scripture says you're taking them to hell. And I, now this was in 19, this was in 2002 or three. Mm-hmm. Your scriptures say that, not mine. Man, I just majored in biblical literature. Don't tell me what scripture is, God. I know what the scripture is, and I'm having this conversation with God. Really an argument. And so, so I remember the voice saying, I would have said the Lord in those days. Um, so if, if that's what's happening, you think we're sucking them right into hell, what would, what would change that? I said, well, they need to get saved. He said, oh. So if the only thing that would, would change the situation and they go to heaven is they need to get saved, why don't you put your little baby down, push your meal away, get on the first thing smoking. Why would God use that kind of language if it's God? And go get him saved. And then I burst into tears. I was angry. I was, I was uh, very disenchanted and I felt a lot of guilt. And I said, God, don't put that guilt on me. I'm doing the best I can. I waited 40 years. Now I felt guilty because I had these babies. I didn't get married till I was 40. Didn't have my son till I was 41. So and I was leaving myself free for God to use. And here I was 40 and, you know, I had nominal success. I mean, I had what y'all call a mega church and stuff. 
Um, but I, I felt like I wasn't impacting the world. I kept saying, we're growing. We're not growing. We're just getting fat. We're swapping sheep and recycling saints. Uh, because when I have a conference, all the other big churches would come to me. When one of my other brothers would have a conference, all of us would go to him. And we had about five mega churches still doing this town. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, Robert. I got really bored with my ministry. It was mm. horror. For 10 years, I sat in that maybe sitting with a jammed impact with people. The presence of God, great preaching, great music. The things I'd been taught were precious. Mm-hmm. And, and I couldn't, it would be, it's like being a chef preparing a meal that everybody enjoys but you. Yeah. I had painted a picture. Everything was good, but I kept thinking, why the fuck am I not enjoying this? I am so empty. The conference is called Azusa. My people were calling it abuse because <laughs> there's these angry church people and preachers hustling seats on the front row, trying to get to me or whoever the speaker was. I felt it was being weakened in its purity because there was so much. I've come to the conclusion, could be premature, that most of the success of anybody's ministry or organization, but particularly ministry, the larger works, are 80% ego and testosterone, maybe 20% Holy Ghost. (laughs) 80% testosterone, 20% Holy Ghost. Testosterone and ego. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, you meet somebody with no ego and you haven't met anybody. You meet somebody with too much and you got a monster on your hand. There is a balance. I'm not Mm -hmm. denying ego altogether, but I walked with the great I had the privilege of meeting Billy Graham personally and spending a whole day with him. My wife and I, when they had the Oklahoma bombing here, <clears throat> he's uh, the uh, Jim Baker. Do you know who Jim Baker is? PTL, PTL Heritage USA. He had just come out of prison. I had him on my stage. I'm, and he came on my stage the Wednesday night that the bombing took place in Oklahoma City when 180 people were killed. So the governor, who was a friend of mine, I was, I was one of the few black Republicans in the state, and he was a, I was a big anti-abortion guy, and so was the governor, and we were friends. So I knew him when he was attorney general. We'd known each other for years. So he calls me on that day. He says, look, we're doing a memorial service for these people who were killed. Can you come to Oklahoma City on s- Sunday? And I said, of course, Your Grace. What, Your Excellency, what would you like me to do? He said, well, I just need you to be there. I need you to close out the thing. I want you to think of something to say. Billy Graham's going to be the, the keynote speaker, eulogist, but I want you to close it out because I want it to be high and, and, and high energy and happy. <clears throat> he called, I said, of course I'll be. He calls the next day. He says, oh, my God, this thing's CNN's coming. President and Mrs. Clinton, the cabinet, it's bigger than I thought. Can you come earlier and host Billy Graham? Because I have to meet the president's Air Force One and all that stuff. I said, well, I'll try to... I'll try to fit it in my schedule and see if I can be there. Man, I said, what are you talking about? Of course. So, Rob, this was a tremendous experience. I'm standing at the governor's mansion. The chefs, the butlers, all these people are there, and we're waiting for Dr. Graham to come. And they open the door, and and my wife and I are right in front of him to receive him. He steps in the door, tall, gracious, big old smile, face a little creased and wrinkled from carrying the burdens of the cross, hair a little thin, nice rinse on it, shoulders beginning to stoop. Um, but he's, he's shaking like this from Parkinson's. And he literally shuffles in the door. And I just became overwhelmed with emotion because he's, he was like a huge giant 
broken but powerful. And he hugged everybody there. He didn't even know I was going to be hosting him. He had been on our show with Oral, but I never met him. Um, so he hugs the chef and he hugs uh, the butlers and the, all the people, security. He comes around to every one of us. And I watched him, this big, tall giant, but he shuffles in and they take us to eat. I said, may I fix your, they had like buffet style, may I fix you something? You know, I'll get in line with everybody else. So we, we were in line together, sat down at the table. For some reason, the universe found space and place for me to sit with him for hours. I spent the whole day and we closed our day together because he and Ruth and me and Franklin and me and my wife were the only ones to give a guided tour to ground zero where the actual bomb took place. So we had that kind of intimacy that day. But we're talking and he's shaking. And he said to me, he said, I, I, I've been in this 50 years preaching the gospel all over the world. And you know what, son? It seems like things are worse. I said, what do you mean, sir? He said, I've been all over the world. I never expected the, at that time the largest act of terrorism on American soil. I'd be coming to Oklahoma City mm -hmm. to preach a funeral for almost 200 people. It's as if our work is in vain. And he said, look at me. He said, um, it hurts to hold a pen. All I do is write memoirs now. Hurts to hold a pen. I said, are you in pain now? He said, yes. I took his knife and fork and I cut up his food for him. He let me do it. Ruth sitting right next to him, stooped with osteop, um, what is it? Oste osteoporosis. Osteoporosis. Mm. You could see her shrinking in the seat. Never said hardly anything. My wife's right next to her. So we engage, and I start trying to make him feel better. Well, sir, you've passed on the mantle to us, and we got it, and you don't need to worry about it. You're our chief. He said, wait a minute. You guys have it made. I said, in what way, sir? He said, you can get on a supersonic jet and go anywhere in the world and be there in hours. I said, yes, sir. He said, that's not the way it was for us in the 40s and 50s when we went abroad to preach the gospel. He said, we had to get on ships. And we had to be on a ship for three or four weeks at a time to get to India or some parts of Africa. We couldn't stay there three days. We had to stay there three weeks or three months or sometimes longer. He said, you see, my, this lady here, he kissed her, this lady here raised our children. Mm -hmm. We paid a great price. And look at me. He's, he, it was as if we'd known each other. 50. He just started opening up to me. Now, this was before I had expanded my consciousness, but I was thinking... What is this man feeling? He, he gave his whole life. And the world, what stunned me was he said, the world seems worse. After all my sacrifice, all my preaching, all my reaching, all my traveling, the heated arguments my wife Ruth and I had, and I'm, I can only say that because they've admitted that they had them. You know, when his daughter got married, she started having arguments as all marriages do. She comes home and she's freaked out because she never heard her parents argue. And Ruth had to say, baby, we, we actually did. We just didn't argue in front of you. You can imagine the kind of heated arguments. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a story in, at the end of his memoir where he talks about he comes home after being gone for months on the road. And this beautiful boy runs across the lawn towards him. And his first thought is, what a beautiful little boy. Oh, Ned. And then, oh, that's my son. Didn't recognize his son. Can you imagine? Well, you can pick that up on his memoir. This whole generation, and he's the king of 
rescuing people traveling around the world, rescuing people from hell. And at the end... He doesn't know his kid. Yeah. Yeah. I heard, I saw a conversation with he and Robert Shuler. I used to didn't like Robert. I always respected him, but he didn't mention Jesus enough for me. So, um, in his sermon, so I had this attitude. <clears throat> Oral loved him. He came back and forth. Uh, and... You know, we Pentecostals didn't think fundamentalists. I mean, you guys were all right, but we we didn't. Us guys. You know, <laughs> that the you know the what? the Methodists and the Baptists and we didn't think they really had it because they didn't speak in tongues and stuff. Um, we had judgments. I we we saw black Baptist people. The ladies wore bright red fingernail polish and lipstick, and they drank, and the preachers smoked. I mean, they would smoke in front of us. I said, well, we holding this preachers at least have the dignity to hide the cigarettes. <laughs> Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Uh, I had all these presuppositions that had me dangling between worlds. And so that conversation with Billy, see, what, what, I, what was interesting, I said to him, because I knew that his family home was on the property at PTO. I'd seen it. His original house that he was born in. Jim Baker had bought it. So I said to Billy Graham, sitting there at the table back in Oklahoma City, I said, guess who I had on my platform last Wednesday when this bombing took place? He said, who? I said, Jim Baker. He said, guess who met his... I said, fresh out of prison, the first place he preached when he got out of prison, other than Uncle Henry's funeral, is Azusa. Billy Graham said, "Uh, guess who made his plane? He gave him his first home-cooked meal. I said, who? He said, me. And my wife cooked him his first home-cooked meal out of prison. I said, oh, my God. I reached over and kissed him. And he said, um, he said, I, he said I, I guess who visited him several times in prison. I said, who? And he said, me. But I kept, I did it under the radar because they would have never gotten over me visiting Jim Baker. Hmm. You're talking about forgiveness and, and restoring a fallen brothers. The scripture says, you who are spiritual, not religious. If a brother's overtaken a fall or sin, you who are spiritual, restore. The word in Greek, katartizo, I believe it is, means to repair, not replace. Repair the man. <clears throat> Go in and put a, a, a splint on his arm or yeah. leg if they need it. And I just... I realized then, and then that conversation he had with Robert Shula, they were saying, we're no longer trying to convert people, just convince them. We've tried all over the world. We're not trying to convert people. We just tell them about the love of God. That's grim. You can, you can go on the internet and find it. <clears throat> and then um, he came out, stop me if I vary too much. I have a zillion stories to tell you. <laughs> um, some years ago, the USA Today came out, and it was a front page, four-color Headline, Gospel of Billy Graham, picture of him sitting on the, his porch in Montreal with pretty long white hair to his shoulders. Um, the Gospel of Billy Graham, inclusion. Some of my people started calling me, said, Pastor, turn, uh, get the USA Today. And it, he broke it down. He actually began to talk about his, um, his appreciation for all the different races and the different uh, ways to God that ultimately as we fundamentally said, believe that Jesus was the way, but just like getting here to the Brady, we came, there's all kind of roads that we all get to the same place. And every one of those ways ultimately would be 
in his thinking, or people with expanded consciousness, some form of the Christ consciousness. I mean, Anton Mesmer made this statement, Jesus is the man, Christ is the science. Mm. We get the word mesmerized mm. from his name. Jesus is the human, Christ is the knowledge. Science means knowledge. Conscience means with knowledge. Christ, the Christ consciousness, who hath known the mind of the Lord, they may, that they may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Christ consciousness existed long before Jesus. I think Buddha had the consciousness, and that just means enlightenment, Buddha. Uh, Krishna had the consciousness. Dionysius had the... You can go back to Osiris or, or, or Isis. They all had the consciousness of Christ because God has always had, or divinity has always had a witness on the earth in humanity. Pretty powerful. Now, this is what I find fascinating. You've just described... You've given us... This painted this picture of a world, Oral Roberts, um, Billy Graham, T.D. Jakes. That that I know for many of my listeners is sort of sort of hearing about a, a foreign, fascinating world. Mm-hmm. But how did you go from that world to a universal Christ consciousness and a divine witness to all people in all places? Well, you know the 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 the, the premier motto of the fundamentalist Christian world is go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. We Pentecostals have, have embraced the scripture that in the last days I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So I felt that we were so spiritually incestuous because we couldn't get outside of our particular denominational mm-hmm. uh, formulas. Um, I called it homosectarianism same sect relationship that to me is more threatening than same sex relationship will ever be it's that we because the islamic and the jewish and the christian and and then you break those down to sunnis and shia and baptist and uh we are so we are so territorial so clannish and cliquish and clubbish that we we weren't impacting the planet in a positive way yes now jesus with 12 guys we're still talking about him you know, we got multi-million dollar ministries and mega churches, and yet the situation seems to be, as Billy Graham indicated, worsening. We're missing it, Rob, somewhere. And all my years as a preacher, and I think Oral, Oral kind of, you know what Oral said to me one time on the plane? He said, if I, um, we were on the jet, he said, if I was a black man and I had all that I have, I take this whole world for God. That's the way he spoke. I take the whole world. Now, part of that was ego, but he was saying, trying to say to me, you are black, boy, and, you are, and I'm pouring into you and training you. Now, take the whole world for God. <laughs> take the whole Well, that's, he felt that his ministry was having more impact than denominations, and it kind of was. Um, he was very frustrated with the church and the limited thinking and the small mindedness. And uh, he liked, he always went for the underdog. He was, native, he was a Native American Cherokee Indian and he was proud of it, you know. And he, 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 he said, black folk have something that other folk don't. He said, first of all, I think they're, they're created to breed. I, won't, I shouldn't even brought that part up. I, I started to say, what do you mean by that, sir? But that's beside the point. He said, um, 
black people are quick, have quick faith. They believe quickly. I, I always had them at the front of the line in my tent crusades. I said, why? He said, because they had quick faith. They'd get happy real fast. And their energy and excitement would, would, would raise the faith of everybody in the tent. And I, my miracles happened quicker. <laughs> he actually had his people to bring them. You know, black folk in those days, if they went to an old Roberts meeting, when they got emotional, they were going to say, yeah, thank you, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Hey. And he would talk like that and you weren't offended. Did you laugh? Did you yeah, correct him? Were yeah. you? No. I, I mean, he, could, he wouldn't say it everywhere, but he could say it to me because he said, you're my black son. I said, what do you mean by that? Well, he said, 25% of my income, this was in 1974, Kathy Lee Gifford and I were singing on the, with the World Action Singers. I got called to Oral's office in 74. You don't get called up there unless you're in trouble. So I got there, and I'm sitting in the outer office with his secretary, Ruth, and I could hear Kathy's voice. She was crying. I couldn't hear Oral's voice, but I could hear her high pitch stating her issues. She and I had talked about it, but she didn't tell me I, she was going. I didn't tell her I was going. A few minutes, the door opens. She comes out brushing tears away, and I said, hey, what's happening? She, she just kept walking. Then I go in, and uh, Kathy, Kathy and I had agreed that we would drop out of the singers, the Oral Roberts singers, in 74. She went to Hollywood. I took her to the airport when she made a trip out there, and she's became a huge, huge star for that. Um, I agreed that I would leave the, leave the, not the university, but leave the singers and go on the evangelistic field. And I did. Went on a 21-day fast, hit the road that summer, experienced my God moving through me in a way that I needed to, came back to the school that fall. But when I got in there, Oral said, why are you leaving? And I told him. I won't say all the reasons why now. But um, he said, well, I, he said, 25% of my income is consistently black people. I need a black son. Richard, who was sitting next to me, says, that's the indispensable name of Roberts. I didn't know what indispensable meant at that time. That's why I bring it up. I'll look at it later. Um, has the indispensable name of Roberts. <laughs> he said, but your name is not Roberts, but you're my spiritual son. I need a black son, and you are him, and I'm going to pour into you, and we're going to touch the world together. I believed him. I felt it, and I agreed with him, but I still left the group. Because I felt led to, I think it was a test of my faith. It was like I, Abraham sacrificing. I came back that fall after traveling all over the country, experiencing the evangelist that I am, and they put me back in the group and then made me associate evangelist after that. That was the fall of 74. I, my class was 75. They put me as, as associate evangelist. I began to travel with him more directly and with Richard and his first wife. Um, and I just experienced everything really does work together for good. Mm -hmm. I saw the world. Oral said that to me. You don't want to limit yourself. He talked about, you know what I said to him one time? <clears throat> I said, you, you need to preach more against sin, Oral, like, like Swaggart. Jimmy Swaggart, you, you don't deal with social issues as much. He said, what do you mean preach against sin? I said, well, like Swagger. He said, Swagger's got all my people. They, they all let, when I started with the universe, they all went to him. They're both Pentecostal preachers. Little ego there. I said, um, he said, why, why preach against something when there's so much to preach for? Now, this was way back in like in the 80s. So that hit me. Carl, you're stuck somewhere. 
You're going to preach against sin and tell everybody they're going to hell and they need to go. Which you never heard Earl talk that way, ever. He never even mentioned hell. Though he corrected me thinking that I was going to go there or leave people when I started preaching inclusion. His concern was not what I was saying, but that it would, it, that it would do what it did, which was destroy my ministry. So you have this moment with your daughter. There's a Mercedes in the garage. There's yeah. the refrigerator is full. You have this moment with your daughter watching TV, Hutu, Tribe, Tutsis. You have some sense of the divine voice saying to you, what do you think we're doing here? Yeah. And then from there, you begin preaching a new message? How's fo- it work? The following Sunday, I said that hell is on earth, that we create it. I, the following Sunday. I didn't mean that there was no eternal hell because, I, in fact, I, I didn't know I didn't believe in hell until um, the Dateline show came on and who, I forget the lady's name, the, the beautiful Asian lady who introduced Keith Morrison and him hosting me on the show. He said, they showed pictures of me in the White House and my big conferences and thousands of people and this guy had it made and blah, blah, blah. And, but he lost it all. Not because he was unfaithful to his wife or because he embezzled money, but because he stopped believing in hell. I thought, whoa, wait. Hey, I didn't say that. I, I still <laughs> believe in hell. I just don't believe nobody's going to be there. But at that time, I was still in that mi- mindset. Mm-hmm. But I thought, why, well, then why do you believe in it? A literal hell. You know, the scripture says the letter or the literal kills. Spirit gives life. What if all this is metaphorical and metaphysical and analytical? What if it's all spiritual transcendent and that you've literalized it and you're miserable my dad let me tell you another health can i tell you another health story <laughs> yes my grandmother <laughs> my my dad my, my my parents come from a classical pentecostal background my dad's dad was a pentecostal preacher part native american part african-american pretty wavy hair green eyes good looking man she her name she's from Bowley, oklahoma mingo named her last name is mingo that's the name of one of the streets here in tulsa Native American. He, they were strict Pentecostals, holiness or hell, poverty, couldn't read. My grandfather sold fertilizer during the Depression. They were angry, hurt people. My grandfather started, as the old folks say, he chasing skirt tails. He started chasing women. And, but only women in the church. Saints don't commit sin with sinners. We only commit sins with saints. <laughs> So we can all plead the blood together. <laughs> um, <laughs> eventually, da- granddaddy backslid. And then his wife backslid. You know what that means. Um, and then, but when I came to college, just before she died, she quote unquote came back to the Lord when I was in high school. And she heard me preach one time in the church that my grandfather built. She, she, then she had a massive heart attack one night and we learned that she had played the dogs the night before. She kind of backslid. We lived in Tijuana, lived five miles north of Tijuana border. They would go over there and play the dogs and stuff, gamble. So grandmama had a massive heart attack. She's in, daddy, my dad rushes out to emergency and they're trying to resuscitate her. But he could hear her making sounds, audible sounds. It was very painful and she would come back and almost scream. And he's behind the curtains and listening to this drama and feeling it too. A few minutes after the third unsuccessful attempt to resuscitate her, the room gets quiet and, and the doctors are taking off their gloves and their stuff and they walk out. And daddy goes into his mother. She's laying on the, uh, on the 
gurney with her arms like this, her mouth open, her ears, her eyes partly open, her breasts exposed. And she looked like she was in the place where she taught him people like her go. Hell. Like that. Um, Daddy was horrified. And he quickly pushed her mouth closed in her eyes and folded her arms in front of her closed, her exposed breast so his sisters wouldn't have to see her that way. But he carried that view in his mind and he shared that with me. And we had to say this, Rob, and anybody listening with any type of sobriety of compassion, it's hard to, to bury your grandmother or grandfather, or your child or your spouse or your best friend who was backslidden or never saved and presume that they'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of their teeth the rest of time in, infinitely, right? I mean, daddy had to carry that. He was still preaching. We're sitting at her funeral singing, be not dismayed, whatever be tied, God will take care of you beneath his wing. God will take care of you. And she's in a coffin and everybody in the room from our denomination presumes she's going to hell. She's already there. And it's going to be there infinitely. I asked my dad one time, what is the definition of hell? He said, well, son, hell is the place where you're going to be cooking, but you ain't going to never get done. <laughs> and this night. doesn't work for you at some point. It didn't work. It wasn't working then. Yeah. I got to figure out how to. I was trying to keep people from going to hell. But the last part of my life, the last 20 years before I changed was trying to figure out a way how to get them out of hell, not keep them out of there, which is the first part of my evangelist statement. Get them out of there. I hell never made sense. It was too obscene. It was vulgar. It was, it was absurd. It was forensically traumatizing. I said, I got I to gotta sort through this. So you start, you said preaching, you start changing. You start preaching inclusion. You start bringing new words into your sermons well i said to my church we're not growing we're just getting fat i went to when my son was born i went to the county fair i'd never been to the county fair i didn't go to those kind of secular things that was not godly so i went and now i'm nationwide tell oral roberts and i are the only ones on nationwide television in this city other ministers are on locally. Mm -hmm. So I go to the county fair and I see all these people who didn't look like Christians. They didn't look like us. Um, they had, they were chewing tobacco and they were smoking and they were drinking beers. They seemed happy enough. You could see the little circle in their pocket, which you probably don't see out west very much where they had a... Yeah, a little tin. Yeah, tobacco. Yeah, sure. Thing. So I thought, who are these people? I don't see them at Billy Joel's meeting. That's one of my friends. He's in heaven now. Um, as we would say, uh, Victory Christian Center. They weren't at Oral Roberts' meeting. They weren't at my meetings. Mostly non-black people, but they, they didn't look like us. They didn't feel like us. Mm -hmm. So I thought, these people aren't saved. And nobody, a few did, but not, not, not people stomping me every two feet. Hello, Pastor Pearson. Hi, Carlton. Aren't you the preacher? We said none of that. A little of it, but not enough to, I thought, these people don't know who I am. So they, I know they don't know Jesus because if you know, if you don't know me, you don't know Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so your ego's taking a bit of oh, a beating. Oh, it's all over there. I got whipped the whole time I was there. I'm a nobody. And I thought, these people, we're not reaching them. These are Tulsans. There's only 300,000 people here. And, you know, they come in from everywhere. But I thought, 
something's missing. We're not impacting. These people don't even care about us or, or television. So I told my folk, I said, listen, all we're doing is recycling saints and, you know, swapping sheep. I don't think we're winning lost people. Here's what I want you to do. Stop. It's illegal to walk up to someone and say, do you know where you're going to spend eternity on the job like we used to? Uh, if you died tonight, brother, where would you go? That kind of thing. So nobody's really witnessing, per se, the way we did when we were kids. So I said, listen, stop. Don't even think about doing that. Walk up to somebody and say, if you die tonight, do you know that you're going to heaven? I said, find somebody with a needle sticking in their vein. Find somebody snorting a, a joint. Find somebody that's dying of AIDS and tell them that their sins are forgiven. They're loved by God, redeemed by Christ, and that they're on their way to heaven. You, you have that good news to share with them. Now, I didn't know what I was saying at the time, but it sounded like Christian universalism. And I quoted all the scriptures. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin, not sins, sin of the, whole of the world. world. So I started theologizing. And then when using scripture and theology to support, I would have used the term universal salvation. I just said the broader hope. Um, the messages got out to other local pastors that Carlton Pearson was preaching universalism. That that everybody's going to heaven. And so I started getting a lot of resistance. All that did was pressure me to go back to scripture and study more thoroughly its authenticity, its historicity, where it came from. I'm not just a translator, but a transliterator. What the letters of the languages meant as they were written, you know, hermeneutics, who, 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 was, who was writing, to whom they were writing, and what did they mean, not just what did they say. So, um, I said to my people, I said, you have to understand that the Bible is not just the inspired word of God. It's more the inspired word of man about God. Um, and it's a Jewish book written by Jews to Jews about a Jewish understanding of divinity. That's the way Christianity is a Jewish religion. It's, it's a maverick religion, but it's, it's around Christ, Mashiach, Hebrew, the Messiah, Christ. So I started just teaching. I never, I had no idea that the, the, the body of Christ would go crazy and start attacking. But their attacks, it's a law of physics. Anything in motion causes friction. Truman said, if you can't take the heat, you got to get out of the kitchen. Well, that, 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 that traction, that friction comes to give you traction for forward thrust. So I started studying more and studying more. They basically forced me. I would have given that series and kept preaching what I was preaching. But they oh, forced interesting. Me. They forced me to study. So, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Books started coming. Ideas. I started getting on the Internet. Um, I've always been a linguist in that I studied letters and words and that kind of thing, encyclopedias. So I believe that it was God, or as we would, some would say in New Thought, the, the universe is, is, is pacing me. And that thing just happened that way. There was no way I could get around it. And so I, my language changed. I stopped believing a lot of the stuff that I had been taught. <clears throat> this is a powerful observation. The difference between what your spirit or your soul or your cells know or remember and what you, you're taught or told. You believe what you're taught or told. You know what you remember. Mm -hmm. I'm at a place at 62 years old, Rob, when what I know in my soul is in conflict with what I believe. I know I'm okay. I know I'm healed. I know I'm secure. I know I'm loved. I know I am love. I recall it's like a spiritual deja vu in some pre-incarnate reality when I experience my divinity and I'm having these deja vus. It's like, wait a minute. I know I'm divine. 
How dare you speak of me otherwise? Our prisons are filled with men and women who know they're not poor, but they don't believe it. They know they're not alienated or isolated, but they don't believe it. So they rob a bank to I'm, I'm, I'm not supposed to be poor. I, I, I'm, I am loved. If you don't love me, I'll kill you. If you don't love me, I'll cut your neck. I'll, I'll, I'll burglarize you. I'll mug you. How dare you reject me? If we convinced everybody or agreed with what they already know that you're okay, yeah, you're absolutely, buddy. You're good. You're God. You're intrinsically virtuous. You're valuable. You count. That would empty the prisons. That would stop all these people from fighting this terrible sense of being alone. And you start preaching this, and it takes it and takes it and takes it. What happens to your church when you start getting this backlash? You know what? One of my elders came up to me and handed me, the, somebody handed me the Course of Miracles, like my nephews did. I read a little bit of that, and then somebody handed me Conversations with God. Same day. I read all, I started reading, devouring Conversations with God, Neil Donald Walsh. But I was only like maybe three chapters in. I got up on a Sunday morning, and I mentioned it to my crowd. Thousands. The next day, Monday, they hit the bookstores, but it's not in Christian bookstores, so they have to go to secular bookstores. They get the secular bookstores, they ask for the book, and they, they say it's in the New Age section. So I lost like 30 members that week, and it began to trickle. They didn't all leave at once. A lot of them would stay as long as they could, Rob, but their family members and their friends, you still there at Higher D? You know, because the, the Pentecostal Bishop, College of Bishops officially pronounced me as a heretic. Um, another prominent bishop, two prominent bishops released public letters. Uh, the Christian magazine had my face and name in it every month, Charisma magazine, for a solid year in unflattering ways. Eventually, the people couldn't take the pressure. They loved me to this day. They hug my neck in the shoe and cry sometimes when they see me. Bishop, we miss you. We love you. Most of them call me pastor. You want to start a church in Tulsa? <laughs> that kind of thing. We, we just couldn't take the pressure because literally they're old pastors, the students at ORU. You down, you still did, here's the person, you get out of that church. That's of the devil, stay as far away from him as you can. Well, daddy, he, but if you come to church on Sunday, it's powerful. The Holy Ghost is the anointing, the quiet. Get out of there, son. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Rat poison is 90% good corn. It's the 10% strict down that makes it, get out of my rat, man. You know, those kind of things. Oh, wait, 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 wait. What's the rat poison? Rat poison is 90% what? Good corn. I've said that for years. Rat poison is 90% good corn. It's the 10% strychnine that makes it lethal. Stay away from those. I'm only reaping what I sowed. I used to, you know, I would tell people to quit listening. Same thing, right? Yeah. Have so, you noticed, wait, I got to bring this up. Have you noticed that love wins, the term is all over the media, as if the people read your book since the Supreme Court decision? It's like, Love when, my God, the whole world's pushing the book again. They don't even know what they're doing, some of them. This is, I think this is divinely ordained. <laughs> Secular people are saying love wins. Oh, uh, isn't that funny? It's amazing. I just. <laughs> so, um, the, so your church start, so you were on private planes with Oral Roberts, the, the black son of a kingdom, of an empire. Mm -hmm. And. Your church is dwindling. People are leaving. How, how much did it shrink? Well, it got down to hundreds. Hundreds. And what was this like for your, you and your wife and your kids and personally? Well, for me... Because you were more alive than ever. Oh, yeah. Psychologically, it was, I never said it. 
but it was devastating. Mm. I cannot tell you the pain because I had said to my people, we were running out of money. Our offerings dropped fifty thousand dollars. And I said, um, "Don't y'all know the whole? The, the Lord is not going to let us lose this church. What are you talking about? We fasted and prayed and believed God. It's a miracle that we have it in the first place. We just built a one point five million dollar building behind us, and we own those two homes. That's a home for unwed mothers. This is for uh, uh, um, troubled teens. I had a six hundred forty-five acre ranch for inner city troubled teens with this twenty-seven acre lake on it. Um, we had the Azusa." Credit Union, I was starting Azusa Television Network. Um, too much good. Surely, God, you should kill me before you let me mess this up. I mean, if I'm, if I'm that off, in fact, I learned I had prostate cancer. The same time I had the largest, smallest crowd I'd ever had in Azusa. My crowd, they, 350 busloads canceled. I had 8,000 room nights here booked that I was responsible for. Uh, they canceled my conference at ORU and I had to bring it downtown to the convention center. And it was the same week that I learned when the crowd never was above 4,500. Uh, empty seats have, have always intimidated me and the people that I hung up. Oral didn't like empty seats. Catherine, Cook, all the people I hung with didn't. Um, it's a psychological thing and, and an ego and emotional. So to preach to an empty balcony, I had done that when I first got married. My balcony emptied out for about six months when I first got married, and then it filled back up. So I kept thinking, I didn't, I didn't get it at all. It's like God, it's like Jesus saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And he got no answer. There's sometimes when heaven is actually silent, and that means you got to stay with the flow or go with it. So um, it was eating me up because um, the offerings were less. And so I had a $100,000 a month payroll. So I had to start firing people. And when we finally lost the building, a millionaire friend of mine that went to school with me, graduated from ORU, bought the building so it wouldn't go into foreclosure. But I lost my intellectual rights, all my books, all my tapes. I had 15 years of Azusa preaching some of the best of the 20th century um, um, Pulpiteers, uh, I had nothing. I had to give up the name that I felt God gave me, Higher Dimensions, and the scripture base uh, that it was based on. And I didn't know. Uh, my parents were working for me for 20 years. They were in retirement. I was paying them through retirement, and my retirement or pension would have been in there. My t kids' future, my mortgage payment, everything was in question and in jeopardy. Because you had glimpsed a bigger wider view of God and love and life and Christ consciousness? Yes, sir. Rob, Be uh, uh, Rob Bell, who flew down here to see me from back east? Huh? Michael J. Fox flew in from New York to talk to me. He spent three days in town. I said, what are you here for, Rob? Uh, uh, Michael J. Fox. Michael. Um, I said, and by the way, my favorite movie with you was Doc Hollywood. I didn't like, I said I didn't like Back to the Future, but I liked the name because I think we're all going back to our future. And that's a whole other thing. Um, he said, interesting. He said, a lot of people tell me they love Doc Hollywood. He said, but I barely remembered. I said, why? He said, I was at the prime of my life. I just got married. She was pregnant. I was making more money than ever. My name was a household name. And that's when I learned I had Parkinson's disease. It just took all the wind out of my sail. I... 
I was in my prime, and he said, I would never have chosen Parkinson's church. Parkinson's chose me. He said, but you, Bishop, you, you walked away in your, you chose to walk away in your prime. You, you had all this here, and you just chose to walk away. I admire that you walked away, and I let him finish. And when he did, I said, thank you, but with all due respect, I didn't walk away from my stuff in my prime, uh, Michael. I was summoned. I was called away. I, I was like, it was like being on this pinnacle, and you look up there, and you see something much higher. Evidently, nobody could see it, but you, and it's like, whoa, what is that? Oh, my God. If I could have leapt from where, where I was to that place, I would have, but I couldn't. There's no leaping. You had to go back down the hill into mm-hmm. the valley and forge your way across the Ah, I know about that. So, yeah, you do know about that. <laughs> it's like you were, when I heard you speaking in, in, in Laguna, I thought, this, this man, he must, he's telling my story. Because you went through this almost identical stuff with people wanting to see the power. I need another explanation. And what's my pastor saying? And I need to talk to my dad. You know, you get tired of it after a while. So, but I was so, and I told Michael this, I was so fascinated by what my soul was perceiving. Absolutely. I couldn't look back. I, when Absolutely. I looked back, Rob, everything was gone. I didn't see it leaving. I wasn't as present. Somebody sued me. I had to go to court. You know, and when I lost the ranch and millions of dollars of property and your ego and the city watched us die. It was the Unitarian Church that sent me an offering and the unity, the the UCC, United Church of Christ. I didn't even open that letter because I figured this guy is surely not inviting me to his church. Um, but it was UCC. But all these Episcopalian churches, Trinity Episcopal, all the people we thought were going to hell or weren't. Were kind Christian. and welcoming and warm and oh my included God. you and cheering you on and yes calling you brother yeah yes. exactly exactly this the the LGBT community within the church Bishop Yvette Flander washed my feet mm. I went to speak for one of her meetings out west I didn't know she was gay didn't know they were gay till I got there uh, I mean ninety percent of the room was it was powerful the glory of God the music you know. If it wasn't for the the same gender loving people within the black church, we wouldn't have much worship. (laughs) We we would have we wouldn't have the choirs and the musicians and the song. These people live between worlds. They're mystical agents that hear something that other people don't always hear, and they write the most. It is the 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 feminine side of of God manifesting because we wouldn't accept the gospel through women. God sent men who were feminine who brought ministry into the church in powerful ways. And they're like aliens. They're like, the scripture says, be careful entertaining strangers for some have entertained angels unaware, messengers unaware. So embrace the strange, the stranger, the foreign, the alien. Uh, When he says be hospitable, not hostile, be careful entertaining or being hospitable to different things strange things so they washed my feet the jewish community the jewish federation of tulsa called me in around when the tulsa world ran a front page ad of the bishop pearson goes universal i don't forget what it was but it was something it wasn't unflattering but it was intimidating um i started meeting all these people who were so kind i cried when i got through preaching bishop flunder who wasn't a bishop at the time I helped consecrate her to the bishopric, a lesbian Pentecostal girl, woman. Um, she, um, she's married to Shirley, who used to sing, oh, happy day, oh, happy day. Shirley, with the Hawkins family, I thought, oh, my God, everybody's going to hell. 
And I, 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 I felt such love when they finished. I finished preaching. So Bishop walked down the middle of the aisle, let the people hug you and, and love you. And they were hugging and crying and, and squeezing me all the way down this aisle. Incredible. It was intoxicating. It was like I was drunk. And I was crying. And I turned around. I walked back toward the front of the auditorium. And she was on her knees. And they had a vat of warm water. And she said, sit. They brought a chair on. She said, sit there, please, and take your shoes off. And I thought, I'm not going to take my shoes. She said, take your shoes off. And socks. And I did. And she started washing my feet. And the people were singing. And all these, some of them were dying of AIDS and skinny and gaunt. And some of them were transgendered and looked really wild and foreign. But all I could see was angels. I could see the presence. I could see Jesus in every face. The kindest, most gentle, conciliatory energy I'd ever encountered in all my Christian life was in that room that that night. And uh, to this day, I... I have, I've never forgotten that. And Yvette's a very close friend of mine to this very day. I'm going to be with her in Oakland in a few weeks. Um, it was a shaking. I was never mean. I never was hard on anybody anyway. I mean, I, I have, I've had gay friends in my life all my life and in the church, and I've never been mean. But I was not as kind and mm. understanding. I think I was a little influenced by my fundamentalist um, roots. Yeah. And the influence of the bishops and leaders and pastors around me. Um, I had a conversation with Oral about his oldest son. My last conversation with him was three and a half hours long. And he told me that he believed gay people were born that way. I said, what do you mean? He said, um, I said, what scripture do you base that on? (laughs) And I quoted for him because he couldn't remember it. Uh, I was born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's the scripture. Because he, he said, I couldn't he said I couldn't get my son free. He was born that way. I've seen gorgeous disappear, blind eyes, open deaf ears unstopped. But I couldn't get my son free. And I convinced him that day, Rob, that his son wasn't in hell. Wasn't. Wasn't in hell. He cried. And when we got through talking, and his wife Evelyn sat there with me, she, she's, she would never sit in our conversation. Oral and I would talk for hours. She would give us a sandwich, a cup of coffee, and go get a hair done or whatever. She sat there in the room with us and, and she kept in there asking questions and stuff. He asked her, to, Evelyn, let him speak. Stop, stop asking so many questions. You know? And uh, she sat there and I winked at her because we'd seen that before. And when we finished, she said, I've been married to this man 66 years and I've never heard him say the kinds of things, he, some of the things he said today. today. He got up, he stuck his hands in his back pocket when we finished I had to change my flight from LAX to John, John Wayne. She, and he looked up to the ceiling in his house in, in, in Newport Beach. And he said, this is the way he would sound. You might not recognize it. But he would say, I've listened very carefully. He would breathe in to everything you've said. And I like what I hear. That's as close as, close to an affirmation as I was going to get. But my whole being shuddered. And I gave him this big embrace and left. <clears throat> uh, we never had long conversations after that. She died before I could see her again. She fell backwards. And he, he, I told them both, I said, now no falling. She started bragging on her, her walker like it was a BMW. I got this new walker. 
And I said, well, you let me pay for it, ma'am. No, I won't. I said, ma'am, please. She said, only if it's a seat out of your need. And, and I said, it was just a few hundred dollars. I took the cash out of my pocket and paid for them. And I said, look at me, both of you, please. No falling, because if you fall, that'll be the end. Usually happens with people that age. I said, repeat it after me, just the three of us. And everyone said, no falling. Oral just nodded. His ego wouldn't let him use a walker. You know, how's a healing evangelist wear glasses? I mean, it was hard for him to, to, um, to wear a e- hearing aid. I'm telling you. Wow. He struggled with that. So, so, your ch- so you lose all this land. You lose all this. Then, then what happens? Then where do you go? Then does the church keep going? Do you go somewhere else? What happens? We, no. Well, yeah. We, we had about, we got down, there were 1,200 people who still said they were members, but we saw about 300 each week come to church. We, the, the, the Trinity Episcopal Church right here in Tulsa got word to me and said, you can use our building. We finish our last service uh, at noon. You can have it at one. And I said, are you kidding? Free of charge. A beautiful Gothic such. It's one of the most uh, immaculate buildings in town. We packed it every Sunday for a while. That's where they shot the, the NBC movie, uh, NBC show. Um, they drink wine, real wine. I mean, wine with a kick. After every service, mm-hmm. somebody said, where you, where you, where you find uh, three or four Ep- Episcopalians, you will find a fifth. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we had real wine with our communion and they have a, an open chalice um, open communion so they drink such such potent wine I said why is this stuff so strong because I'm getting drunk and they said well it's an open cup and the antiseptic the, the, the stronger the wine the more of an antiseptic it is I'm sitting there in the cathedral with full vestments like a bishop the first time our two churches share communion together. And you're talking about powerful communion. Mm-hmm. All these uppity white people, you know, most of them wealthy and they're business people and they're smart and it's old money. They come down and they t- stick the, the host in the chalice. I mean, they, they, they didn't stick the host in the They would drink from the cup, the common cup, all of them. And here's all these black, mostly black and Pentecostal people in the same communion service. And they're drinking out of the same cup we are. And we've never drank it. And a lot of our people did like this, you know, and just stuck the, ch- the host in there. But a lot of our people drank out of that cup. And I was sitting there in the cathedral watching, and I started crying. And you saw blacks and whites who had never met each other before, didn't know each other's names, had never worshipped together, certainly hadn't shared the Lord's table together. And I said, this is the first time I've ever really been in a communion, a holy communion in my life. Because we drank out of the same cup. And we did that several times when I was at that church. In fact, they started inviting me to speak in there seven o'clock and eight o'clock, and they had several services. And um, we had communion at every service. And by the time my one o'clock service came by, and they believe in the scripture that says, drink ye all of it. <laughs> so we had to go back uh, behind in, in the uh, chancel and um, uh, um, sacristy and drink all the rest of the wine. <laughs> so by the time my one o'clock service came around, <laughs> Man, I was sitting high and looking low. <laughs> we had glorious service. That Father McKeith's still a very dear friend of mine. It's extraordinary. And so, so to, to kind of even begin to wrap this up, where next? Where do you go next? What are you dreaming about? You know, when people say, where are you? I say, nowhere. 
and then I change the spelling and it says now here. Um, I'm just here, Rob. I don't really know. It's, I'm a man without a country. I write books and I, I write everything and I'm writing. My next book's going to be titled, You're Not in Trouble, You're in Transition. Hmm. Making, managing, and mastering change. Because there's a lot of people who are going through all kind of trauma. And they write me. I've got a lot of um, recovering fundamentalist preachers and bishops from all over this country who are saying, Bishop, we, we, we don't have a, a theological issue with you. It's a business decision. Don't stop. We're listening. Brother, you, you're, you're, you're changing the whole culture. Please don't stop. Had a man in from London last, I was in New York last week. He said, will you, will you, if we fly you over, there's a bunch of young preachers in their 30s and 40s. They just want to pick your brain. Um, would you father this? I think we are, Rob, making a powerful universal shift in consciousness. Religious sensibilities are changing. And we have a mandate, a mantle. You've always had a mantle. Now you have a mandate to help change the language, help I called, I told a bishop the other day in New York, I said, this is a new Pentecostal movement. Speaking in tongues is not a lot of gibberish. What explains the whole experience is when they say, we heard them speak in languages to which we could relate the wonderful works of God. So it wasn't gibberish. The people heard and understood. They were amazed because they understood. Um, how many times have we preached and gone to church, at least me, I accept it, but I don't understand. For the first time, 45 years of ordained ministry, I actually feel like I'm clearly understanding the bridge between spirituality and science. I, you know, I just, when, when I read that statement by anti Jesus is the man, Christ is the science conscious. Science, it's an experience and it's an experiment. Scientists do a lot of experimenting. I'm doing a lot, you want to ask me what I'm doing? I'm experimenting. And I'm expanding and I'm expressing and I'm ex experiencing an aspect of myself and my soul I didn't even know was possible. And Rob, I have shouted and danced and run and spoken in tongues and enjoyed the Lord all my life as a classical Pentecostal. But where I'm going now and what I'm experiencing in my life is unparalleled. My background in classical Pentecostalism does inform my present transcendence. But this is deep. It's rich. It's the most satiating experience I've ever had. And I didn't think I could have any higher than some I had when I, even when I was a kid. This is powerful. It, it does transcend all boundaries. I've sat with rabbis, Muslim imams, Wiccan priests, which priests. The guy that's doing the script for the movie about my life is, is an is an, is a, an atheist and he's one of my best friends we have some of the most provocative and 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 thoughtful conversations and we've been working together for seven years and i was with him in new york last week i love him like a brother he we have no issues in fact i enjoy talking with him more than some of my christian friends mm -hmm. so this is the whole you talk about i read uh, aldous huxley's book brave new world when i was in high school this is it Rob, this is a brand and brave new world, and you're right in the middle of it. This is a prophetic utterance in the earth that has pricked the hearts. And, and I'm so proud of you because, you know, I got the reports of the pioneers, so is you. But I'm looking back at what happened to me 12 years ago. And I, when, I see, when I saw you on Oprah, I see read your stuff, and I said, this young man, 
my goodness, um, maybe it's because he's white, but he's getting by with stuff. <laughs> You're saying, and the Pope's saying the same stuff we're saying. This is no small matter. This is no puny thing. Now, I've been in the church all my life, and I've walked with the greatest biblical interpreters of the 20th and part of the 21st century, helped create some of them, if you will, or present them. Uh, but I'm, I've never been more excited. This is not just a move. It's becoming a movement along with the changing of the times, the, the age of Aquarius, the age of enlightenment, uh, this mystical, I'm Pisces, so I, I love the mystical depths of the waters and I love being near water and I love its translucence and transparency and I love that it quenches thirst. Spirit, spirit is a metaphor of water. And so I, um, in the last days I'll pour, we're 80% water. That's why, name, not what your name, but what you're called causes vibrations in your, your, on a cellular as well as a cellular level. So I feel my own ruach, my own pneuma, my own breath, my own spirit, pneuma and lungs in Greek. I feel my essence shifting mm. powerfully. Oh my God. I'm going to have a Pentecostal fit in you. I call myself a Metacostal. <laughs> <laughs> I've embraced Well, you know, I think of all, all my good friends out there who listen to this Robcast who they're seeing something new, mm -hmm. and so many of them are surrounded by a system, an office, an extended family, a church, a culture, a city that's telling them they're crazy. Yep. And yet they're seeing something. And one of my great passions is just to keep saying, you're not alone. Yeah. You're not alone. Yeah. You're not alone. And Paul said, if I am beside myself, which means if I've lost my mind. Ecstasis. Ecstasis. Yes. Ek meaning out of stasis status. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, if, I, if I'm out of the state that I used to be in, it's for God. But watch this part. But if I'm, if I'm thinking right, and I think we are, Rob. And to all your listeners, you're thinking right, buddy, ma'am, sister, uh, dude, uh, homie, Pookie, Ray Ray. You're thinking right. <laughs> and it's going, he said, if I'm thinking right, it's going to bless this world. It's going to change mm -hmm. this planet. I believe that we are in all this stuff with global warming and it seems so horrible. This, is the, this isn't judgment from God. This is the universe correcting itself. I think our message is a part of of a correction, a cleansing. Righteousness means to be erect or upright. Uh, I use the term accuracy. Add correct, add correct, erect, direct. Um, we're standing up again. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, we're standing up. Ah, uh, so great. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having the courage to have a bonafide card-carrying heretic on your program. Oh, man. Join the club. <laughs> Join the club. You're good at it. <laughs> You're good at it. And you know, when I, I saw you on, on uh, Super Soul and I said, God, this guy's expanding. Because we're not just, Rob, we're not just preaching. I don't necessarily believe in a God that demands blood sacrifices anymore. So I'm really beyond that. And I, when I saw you on, on the Super Soul, I said, now... He ain't preaching universalism. I think he's expanded. I think he's transcended into another consciousness that is much brighter and broader. Business people would listen to this. I saw Deepak. I love Deepak. I saw him in a theater in Chicago 
he wasn't even using PowerPoint. He was. He, he just was sat in a stool and talked, and it blew your mind, right? Everybody, my was three, we were yeah. transfixed. Yeah, when I was out, when we were on tour with him, he just kept blowing my mind with just sitting on a stool with almost no body movement, just completely frying my circuits. Yes. Yeah. He's a spiritual scientist. Oh. And the scientific spiritual. Overwhelming. I, I, but that's so, so are you. You are so bright and so intelligent and so informed. I said, you, would have, you must have been withholding. Well, I just always say when you, once you've tasted, you can't untaste. Yeah. Once you see, you can't unsee. That's very true. And I love Jacob falls asleep by the side of the road. He has a dream. He wakes up and he says, surely divine was in this place the whole time. And I, I wasn't it aware not. of it. I didn't know it. Yeah. yeah. And I was just, it's a story about waking up. We're all waking up. Yes. We're all this, waking up. This is the and if, and if we can, you and I, if we can help some people wake up. Well, you know. Fantastic. If we can close with this, what Jesus said to Nicodemus after he said, master, we know your teacher sent from God because nobody can do these miracles. And Jesus goes, hmm. You must be born again because you wouldn't have had that revelation. And Nicodemus says, what do you mean? The word again in Greek is anothen. English, we get the word another, other, ether. Some translations say born from above. He was born ethereally, something he quickened to that otherness and etherness of God. He didn't even know what it was <coughs> as, as Peter when he said, thou art the Christ. Uh, flesh and blood has not revealed to you, but my Father was in heaven. Then Jesus began to explain or make plain the revelation Peter had. And Peter said, oh, no, that ain't. That yes, ain't. yes, 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 yes. Because that's what, yes. There is an explanation beyond revelation. Because people have tasted something and then you come along and maybe give them some language that helps put words to what they've already experienced. To their consciousness, yes. Come on. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm this is so great. I have to call you Mr. Pentecost. We were you teaching us <laughs> oh. <the> language. <laughs> And that, my brothers and sisters, is another Robcast. Grace and peace be with you. All right. Bye now. <laughs>